All right. Well, good to see everybody today. And we're going to be in Revelation chapter 10 and 11. So if if, um, it's your first day with us here, we've been tooling through the book of Revelation for a while now. And uh, we picked it back up with chapter four in in January. And so we have been going through um, this kind of section by section, but today we're going to be in chapters 10 and 11, and, and last week we did the seven trumpets, and in the middle of the seven trumpets, or at, not in the middle, but at the very end, before the seventh trumpet, there's a break, just like there is in the seven seals, just before the seventh seal there was a break, and, and this one is the two witnesses, so as we come in here, we're going to uh, come into that, but, but in chapter 10... Beginning in verse one, uh, one, it says, Then I saw another mighty angel coming down from heaven, wrapped in a cloud with a rainbow over his head, and his face was like the sun and his legs like pillars of fire. He had a little scroll open in his hand, and he set his right foot on the sea and his left foot on the land and called out with a loud voice like a lion roaring. When he called out, the seven thunders sounded. And when the seven thunders had sounded, I was about to write, but I heard a voice from heaven saying, seal up what the seven thunders have said and do not write it down. And the angel whom I saw standing on the sea and on the land raised his right hand to heaven and swore by him who lives forever and ever, who created heaven and what is in it, the earth and what is in it, and the sea and what is in it, that there would be no more delay, but that the days of the trumpet call to be sounded by the seventh angel, the mystery of God would be fulfilled just as he announced to his servants, the prophets. So when the seventh trumpet blows, it it all happens. This is when everything that, that, you know, kind of when you think of the book of Revelation, it's, it's all going to happen, but, but we're going to stop here in chapter 10 and verses one through seven and look and, and say that God reigns throughout history. God rules and reigns throughout history. This is the thing that we're going to see. What we're seeing is, is pictures that, that we've already looked at kind of coming in. The mighty angel is described in terms that remind us of God on the throne or reminds us of Jesus. It's, it's this picture of looking at things that we've seen. For instance, in Revelation 1-7, it says, behold, he is coming with the clouds and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him and all the tribes of the earth will wail on account of him. Even so, amen. So we see him coming down in a cloud. In Revelation 4, 3, it says, and he who sat there had the appearance of Jasper and Cornelian and around the throne was a rainbow that had the appearance of an emerald. So we have another look there. Ezekiel chapter 1, verses 26 through 28 also talk about the bow. In uh, Revelation 1, 16, it says, in his right hand, he held the seven stars from his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword. His face was like the shine, sun shining in full strength. Or another one would be Matthew 17 too, uh, um, would be Jesus at the Mount of Transfiguration. It says, and he was transfigured before him. His face shone like the sun. His face became white as, uh, as light. So we see all these different pictures kind of coming in describing this one who has come, this mighty angel, or maybe the angel of the Lord, or it could be, you know, Jesus that we're talking about here. Um, but, but this is what we're seeing here. And then we see his legs were like pillars of fire. And, and the pillars of fire, if we come back in the Old Testament, we see that they reflect the presence of Yahweh. They, they, they reflect the presence of God. And he, in Nehemiah 9, 12, It says, by a pillar of cloud, you led them in the day and by a pillar of fire in the night to light for them the way in which they should go. So the pillar was the presence, the presence of God. Um, His feet were like burnished bronze in chapter one, verse 15. Um, And and that's another likeness to the pillars of fire that that his feet were polished out or burnished in the fire. Um, In Exodus 9, 9 through 19, show God descending on Sinai in a thick cloud of fire with thunder and trumpet blasts. So if we come back and and you see when when God descends on Mount Sinai to the children of Israel and and he comes down there to to speak with them and we get the Ten Commandments, um, he comes in a cloud of fire with thunder and trumpet blasts similar to what we're seeing 
here with the thunders and the trumpets and, and so forth. So there's a lot here that's pointing to the sovereign God descending and announcing final judgment. When we come down and kind of boil it down, we, we look at here and say, you know, God is coming and he is saying that there will be a final judgment. And the rest of the book really is going to kind of flesh this out. So as we come through Revelation, it's going to flesh it out. What does it look like? The seven thunders are sealed up. He says, seal up the seven thunders to be revealed. And, and then we're going to, to see that. So this is promised by the sovereign God. This is a promise from God that this is true and it will happen. And it's promised by Jesus who created all things and has proclaimed this throughout the Bible. So we're coming in here and being drawn back to the throne of God. We're being drawn back to the glory of God, to the presence of God, to the power of God that is seen as he controls all things throughout history and so forth. And in that um, this this is the this is this is all stuff that's been revealed to us throughout the Bible. So the, that's the point. The point of it all coming in is to draw us to God, to draw us to worship, to draw us to adoration of him, to move us into this place where we see him and we're drawn to him and we worship him and we make him known to the people around him, we, around us. We make him known to the nations. So we were made for this. That's, that's what we were made for. That's what we're created for. You were made for this. You were made to make God known, to make him known to the people around you, to make him known to the world around you. Um, in our church, we, we call it a core value of missions and evangelism, that this is something that we highly value, that we invest in, we spend time in, we, we put our energy there. And, and when you read this book of Revelation, it draws us to this. And, and so we can come at it from different perspectives. A lot of times people come at the book of Revelation and say, you know what? I want to figure out how it all is going to go down. I want to know, you know, are we in the end times? Is this going to happen? Um, when is it going to happen? When is Jesus coming? And, and, and um, Jesus said, I don't know the time. Only the Father knows that. But we are in, in what, what Paul said back then. He said the last days. We're in the days of, of the time to proclaim the message of Christ. So the book of Revelation is, is a book of comfort. And as we come to it, we come to it to learn about God, to worship God, to see him as he is, and to understand more clearly the plans and the purposes that he has for us and, and to be comforted and know that no matter how bad things get, no matter how bad things get here on our, on our earth, in our community, our world, globally, whatever it might look like, no matter how bad it gets, God is on the throne. He's never left the throne. He will always be on the throne. He will always be in control. He is the God who holds history in his hands, and he holds the future in his hand, and nothing will change his plans or his purposes, and he's still there, and, and we are being called to worship. So as we see this, we see this great picture, and, and he's laying this thing out, and then he goes on in verse 8, and he said, um, and tells us about the sweetness of obedient witness and the bitterness of rejection and persecution. We see these two things as he comes in and talks about the scroll. It says, Then the voice that I heard, that I had heard from heaven, spoke to me again, saying, Go, take the scroll that is open in the land of the angel who is standing on the sea and on the land. So I went to the angel and told him to give me the little scroll. And he said to me, Take and eat it. It will make your stomach bitter, but in your mouth it will be sweet as honey. And I took the little scroll from the hand of the angel and ate it. It was sweet as honey in my mouth, but when I had eaten it, my stomach was made bitter. And I was told, you must again prophesy about the many peoples and nations and languages and kings. So <clears throat> the next thing we, we see is, is this sweetness of obedient witness. And, and we also see the bitterness when that is rejected by those we take the, the message of, of Jesus to. So there's rejoicing 
at the coming of Jesus. There's a rejoicing that takes place with that. And that's the sweetness of the scroll. The sweetness of the scroll is the message of the cross. It's the message that Jesus has given to us. It's the message of hope that we find in the gospel. And and when John takes this and he eats it, this is a sweet, sweet message. It's something sweet to take and to share. Knowing Jesus, knowing that he's with us, knowing he's physically returning, knowing that that we can never be taken away from him, knowing that we're sealed for the day of judgment. That's the sweetness of obedience. The bitterness is rejection and suffering. The bitterness that comes from that is that the message of Jesus is not always received. It means that when we share this with people around us, that that it's not always received by them. Um, Maybe the greatest example I could give of the bitterness of rejection would be the people who are closest to you that you love the most and you want them to know Jesus more than anything else, but they just won't believe. They just won't listen. That's a bitter, bitter thing when we take it in in, in scope of the picture of what's being laid out here in Revelation. So this message is, is not always well received, and that's a bitter part of it. It's, it's like the message that God gave Ezekiel in chapter 3, verses 1 through 3, about the scroll of lamentations, warnings, and woes that he would take to the people. The people would reject Ezekiel's message. They wouldn't hear it. They wouldn't respond to it. They wouldn't take it. They wouldn't, they, they, they would not They totally rejected the word of God that was brought to them through the prophet Ezekiel. And they will um, reject the message of Jesus that's given by the faithful witnesses in the following chapter. So the final judgment of the world is coming and we begin to see it unfold here. And there's a sweet and a bitter message that, that is, is being given. It's sweet to those who receive it. It's bitter to those who reject it. And it's a message that's been told throughout the history of, of humanity as you come in from Adam and Eve on. It's, it's not something that's new. It's something that's been there. Um, in, the, in the New Testament, we see it fleshed out. The Apostle Paul in, in 2 Corinthians 2, he talks about um, a, a picture of people here smelling an aroma. And the, and the picture for them in that day would be if they went out to war and, and if, if your nation went to war against another nation, when you conquered that nation, the, the people you conquered, you would bring them back and, and they would be slaves. They would be your property. And they would be brought back in. And, and if, if you lost, they would do the same thing to you. So you go, man, this is brutal. These are wicked people. Well, that's the way that it was in the ancient Near East. It, it was a very brutal world. And honestly, humanity's not changed. We, there are places where this stuff goes on today. But, um, but as we go on, they, they would carry their captives. They would often be stripped and carried out and they would be humiliated as they were brought in. And, and then the people in the, in the town where, where the parade was taking place, it would be very sweet to them because in their minds they're saying, yes, we won. We were afraid we were going to be on the other end of it. And so they would throw down flowers and stuff and the, and the carts would come and crush it and there would be an aroma. And, and this aroma to those who were the victors would be sweet and beautiful. And to those who were captives, it would be the bitterness of death. It would be something totally different. And, and this is what's taking place. And in 2 Corinthians 2, 15 through 16, um, Paul writes, For we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing, to one a fragrance from death to death, to the other a fragrance from life to life. Who is sufficient for these things? So you have the sweetness and the bitterness of it. And, and Paul states it simply. It's the exact same message is life to some and it's death for the others. We see it in the Old Testament as the prophets go to take the promise of God, to share the hope of God, and the people would reject that. We see it in the New Testament as it is rejected because the exact same message for some people is life and for others it is death. It's, um, it's the aroma that comes up there. So John is, is being reminded here 
that the message of the cross was one of joy and hope for those who repent and and those who refuse to repent, it it would be death and eternal condemnation. So this is something that that we begin to see and and we see as we move in in this interlude here to move into the two witnesses. And and we need to remember what Jesus has said about all of it. Jesus said in John 15, 20, remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will also keep yours. So coming in, Jesus, he, he gives the same message in, in some respects that, that we would see from Ezekiel. We would see from Jeremiah, who his message was rejected. The message that Jesus brought, many people rejected him. And, and he said, you know what? If, if they receive me, they'll receive you. If, the, if they reject me, they'll reject you. If they persecute me, they'll persecute you. So this is the way it works. And this is the sweetness and the bitterness of it. But in it all, John is coming saying, there's no reason for God's people to fear. There's no reason for the people of God to fear because we belong to Christ. He has already won the final victory over sin. He has completed the work of salvation on the cross. It is there. It is the place that we all go to to be made right with God. Um, He'll protect us from turning away from him. He will be with us in the darkest hour of persecution. He'll never leave us. He'll never forsake us. He'll deliver us into the promised inheritance into heaven that awaits for us in eternity. He promises to deliver us into this place. And that's why when we come back, that is why we do missions. It is why we do evangelism. It is why we share the gospel with people around us. And it's a core value for us. If you come back in, it's really something you go back to. And God told Abraham, Abraham, that I'll bless you and make you a blessing to the nations. That was the thing for Abraham, was to share the message that the promise of God that would come so that people would be drawn to him and moved to faith in God. So that's, that's the uh, prophetic message. And it's one of the values that we, we talk about when we talk about missions and so forth. It's the heart of it. It's not just the seven trumpets we see here that are bringing repentance. The seven trumpets are an awesome thing and they're getting a lot of people's attention, but also the thing we're going to see is that people are sharing the gospel as well, that there is a verbal sharing of it. There are lives that are being shown. People are living it out for others to see. So there's a prophetic message from God's people. These two witnesses that we'll look at, this is a prophetic message from God's people coming in to share the, to to return to Christ, to turn to God, and to, we're to take this message as well. It's a challenge to us as we come in and look at this today. It's a challenge to us to know that, you know what? God has a plan and a purpose. God is in control of heaven. He is over all things. He is the God of history. He is the God who has given us a sweet message to share. He is a God who has, has told us that even though we share a sweet message, that some will reject it. And it is a promise from God that we are to share this hope with our world and our community. So he moves us into there and, and moves us into chapter 11 here where we're called to be witnesses to the gospel of Jesus Christ. The two witnesses here is, is where we're coming in in chapter 11. And he says, Then I was given a measuring rod like a staff. And I was told, Rise up and measure the temple of God and the altar and those who worship there. But do not measure the court outside the temple. Leave that out, for it is given over to the nations. And they will trample the holy city for 42 months. And I will grant authority to my two witnesses. And they will prophesy for 1260 days, which is 42 months or three and a half years, clothed in sackcloth. These are the two olive trees and the two lampstands that stand before the Lord of the earth. And if anyone would harm them, fire pours from their mouth and consumes their foes. If anyone would harm them, this is how he is doomed to be killed. They have the power to shut the sky that no rain may fall during the days of their prophesying. And they have the power over the waters to turn them into blood and to strike the earth with every kind of plague as often as they desire. And when they have finished their testimony, the beast that rises from the bottomless pit will make war on them and conquer them and kill them. And their dead bodies will lie in the street of the great city that symbolically is called Sodom and Egypt, where their Lord was crucified. 
For three and a half days, some of the peoples and tribes and languages and nations will gaze at their dead bodies and refuse to let them be placed in a tomb. And those who dwell on the earth will rejoice over them and make merry and exchange presents because these two prophets have been a torment to those who dwell on the earth. But after three and a half days, a breath of life from God entered them and they stood up on their feet and great fear fell on those who saw them. Then they heard a loud voice from heaven saying to them, come up here. And they went up to heaven in a cloud and their enemies watched them. And at that hour, there was a great earthquake and a tenth of the city fell. 7,000 people were killed in the earthquake and the rest were terrified and gave glory to the God of heaven. So the people of God... Here, as, as we come in, we're, we're beginning to see this. We've got this, this thing happening with these two witnesses. And, and as we come in and look at these two, two witnesses, the first thing he's told is to go and measure, measure it. Measure the outside, measure the inner temple, measure the courtyard. So as we come in, the people of God are the temple. If we come in in the New Testament, um, for instance, Paul wrote, do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit? That we are the temple of God, that our bodies are to be treated as such, that, that God dwells within us, that we are his dwelling place. So first off, he's saying um, we have the inner temple, which if you go back to the old temple, that was the holy place. That was where the presence of God was. The people of God could come in there. You have the court of Gentiles on the outside. In the court of Gentiles, anybody could come into that. And he's saying, I want you to measure this. I want to measure it and and to come in um, in there. And and, uh, what he said, I was given a measuring rod like a staff and told rise and measure the temple of God and the altar and those who worship there, but don't measure the courtyard outside. So the courtyard of the uh, the Gentiles, it's not measured. It's left open. It is um, something that is, is totally different because the people of God are measured and measuring the temple carries the meaning of protecting it. The measuring, um, if you go to Ezekiel chapter 40 through 42, you have the same measuring thing going on. It's about God's protection over his people and his ownership of his people. Another look at it, it's in Zechariah 2, verses 1 through 5. And Zechariah wrote, And I lifted my eyes and saw, and behold, a man with a measuring line in his hand. Then I said, Where are you going? And he said to me, To measure Jerusalem, to see what is its width and what is its length. And behold, the angel who talked with me came forward and another angel came forward to meet him and said to him, run, say to that young man, Jerusalem shall be inhabited as villages without walls because of the multitude of people and livestock in it. And I will be to her a wall of fire around her, declares the Lord, and I will be the glory in her midst. So as we come in, this is the church when he's coming in, he's measuring, God is measuring his people. He's saying, I'm protecting my people. I will be a wall of fire around them. I will protect them from uh, what's going on throughout the persecution that they will endure. And, And as we come in, we see the people of God are persecuted greatly through here, but he's saying that I am holding them. He's promising to protect their faith and to carry us through until the end. He's promising these people who are faithful to him that he will be with them. He will not let them be destroyed. Um, Another way of putting it is we're not taken out of the world, but he protects us. He protects our faith inside the world. Jesus put it this way in John 17, 15. Jesus said, I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. This is the longest recorded prayer of Jesus in the Bible, John chapter 17. In verse 15, he's talking about the uh, believers and he's saying, I I want you to protect them from Satan. I'm not saying to take them out of the world. They're going to be in the world but I want you to protect them from him. And and that protection is, he is protecting us from turning from him and protecting our faith, protecting who we are in him. And the scene that follows is is graphic. As as we come in, we begin to see. So they begin to... uh, The two witnesses do some, some amazing things. You come in here, they, they, they prophesy for 1,260 days, three and a half years, 42 months. It's all the same thing. And, and as you come in, you see a lot of um, 
things like that in the Old Testament. By the way, chapter 11 probably has more Old Testament in it than anywhere else in here. So we could park here for two or three weeks easily and just go through everything that, that we see in the Old Testament coming in that, that ties in with this passage. And um, as much as I would like to do that, I don't think, I think it might, we, we'd be here for years. Um, <clears throat> anyway, um, <clears throat> kind of coming in, if you come in, they had power to shut the sky. If you remember, if you go back to Elijah, he shut the sky for three and a half years. It didn't rain. They had the power of fire to come out of their mouth. Um, and, and if you go back to Elijah, remember when Elijah, when they came to arrest Elijah, they sent the first company uh, commander and army to come to him and, and he calls down fire, smokes him. The second one comes in, smokes him. The third one comes in and the guy falls down and begs him, please don't do this to me. And, and so you, you begin to see some, some things there with, when the witnesses, the prophet, the word of God that is coming, that, that comes and is taken. And, and then, you know, you got the three and a half years. And if you come in and, and you go through there, Elijah, he's three and a half years without rain. If you come through the children of Israel, they have 42 stages through the desert. 42 months is three and a half years. They have 42 stages that they went through in, before they came into the promised land. If you go into the book of Matthew, in chapter one, when Matthew begins to lay out the lineage of Jesus, he says, from Abraham to Moses, or yeah, Abraham to Moses is 17, uh, 14 generations. From uh, Moses to the exile, it's 14 generations. From the exile to Jesus is 14 generations, 42, three and a half. It, it keeps coming up. In Daniel, you'll see that there's a time, times and half a time, three and a half. You see this thing coming up. You see the numbers coming up and popping up again and again and again. And, and uh, if we remember three and a half, that's half a seven. It's half a perfection. It's not there. Um, and, and so we come in and we look at this and we begin to, to see that there's a whole lot that, that is pulled out of Old Testament that we find in here. And, and that should really make sense to us because if you think about it for a minute, that's who John was. John, for John, his Bible is the Old Testament. He's writing the New Testament. He writes the Gospel of John, uh, the book of Revelation, 1st, 2nd, 3rd John, the letters. Um, so the New Testament is 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 just coming into being during his day. So for John, everything that, that he's going to relate to that we see in this, he's going to relate it to what he's grown up with. And, and the other thing is, is, is he is steeped in the Old Testament. I mean, he knows it inside and out. He's in his 90s. He's an old man. And he started probably as a teenager studying this. So here's the other thing. Don't, don't feel discouraged if you don't understand it because it takes a lifetime of, of, of studying and learning to, to gain um, the level that he would have had. And, and so we come in there and we begin to see this. So he begins to describe it and, and God um, begins to describe it to him in these terms. And this is how he sees and he looks and, and as he comes around. So... God is, is um, showing him this graphic scene and, and these witnesses are going to remind us of the prophets of the Old Testament prophets as they come in because they're clothed in sackcloth. This would be the clothing of the prophet. They, um, it's the clothing of repentance. It's the clothing of response to him. And <clears throat> these two witnesses, it's, it's also important that there's two because it takes two witnesses to seal the deal. In the Old Testament, it always takes two. You can't convict somebody on one witness. Um, you couldn't convict somebody on a capital offense without two witnesses. If you remember when they tried Jesus, they kept trying to get two people to come in to have the same story to convict him, and they couldn't get two people to have the same story. And eventually, um, Jesus said, I am the son of man, and you'll see me coming on the clouds. And they said, well, we don't need a witness now. It's blasphemy. We all heard it. And so there it is. So you, you come in, 
and, and you have these two. So, so we come in there in John 8, 17. Um, Jesus said, in your law, it is written that the testimony of two people is true. So it's a true witness. So we see these two witnesses come in. Um, the two witnesses could also be reflective of the two churches or two churches. You go back to chapters two and three that were not apostate. There were two chapter, two churches that were being true to the gospel, true to the word of God. Um, they weren't caught up in idolatry. We could spend a lot of time here, but overall, these are the faithful witnesses of Jesus. If you just come into all of it, basically these are the faithful witnesses of Jesus in the cross calling unbelievers to repent and turn to God. That's what these two witnesses are. They're faithful to Jesus. They're faithful to the message of the cross. They're faithful to the gospel. And they were calling people to repent and turn to God. And the response to this, it really kind of goes back to the sweet and bitter. The response to this is they kill them. Ultimately, the message is totally contrary to who they are. It's totally contrary to what they want. It's totally contrary to, to, to their desires. So the people who have been confronted for their sin, they respond by killing them and then rejoicing over their dead bodies um, in, in the cities that are figuratively called Sodom and Egypt. So um, <clears throat> first let's start and talk about the three and a half days that they're put there. Normally, in, in the ancient Near East, when somebody died, they buried them immediately. You, you didn't really lay people out and, and view them for days. That, that was not a possibility. So they would bury them the first day, and to not bury someone would be considered a grave injustice. It would be considered very disrespectful um, all the way around. But, but for three and a half days... They come and they gloat over their bodies. They gloat over their dead bodies and, and the fact that they have killed them, that, um, <clears throat> that this has happened, that the beast has, has come and, um, and killed them. So we have that and, <clears throat> and uh, the beast rises from the bottomless pit to make war on them and conquer them and kill them and their dead bodies will lie in the street of the great city that's symbolically called Sodom in Egypt. So if we come in and we talk about Sodom in Egypt, um, <clears throat> Sodom is civilization basically at its most immoral and corrupt. As a matter of fact, if we talked about Sodom today, it, there's a picture that's going to pop in your brain. If you've grown up in church, there's a picture and, and if you haven't, if you go back and you read in Genesis, um, you, you read about the story of Lot and, and his family in Sodom, you're, you're going to read a story there. You go, oh man, that just turns my stomach. And, and that is the picture of humanity at its most immoral and most corrupt. And then Egypt would be another picture that we see in the Bible and, and for the rest of it, it's called Babylon. Um, from here on out, we'll, the, the name, the term will flip to Babylon. But, um, but Egypt is civilization at its most oppressive and resistant. Egypt was oppressive over the people of Israel. They had oppressed the people of God, and it was resistant to change that. It was resistant to God calling them out on it, resistant tendencies. And that's where God sends us. This is where God sends his people. This is where he calls us to go. This is where he calls us to take the message. This is where the, the two witnesses went. And, and the beast, interestingly enough, thinks that he's defeated them, but their faithful witness is not only effective, not only is it an effective witness, um, and we'll see that later, later on down in the passage, but they're also protected from destruction by God. Because the church is being continually persecuted by those outside of the faith. Um, the outer court here, if we go back into chapter 10, um, <clears throat> we see that outer court. This is where the church is being persecuted by those who are outside of the faith. But those who are inside are being protected. So <clears throat> as we come, on, come in and look at this and look at the picture and, and to apply it to us today. You know, how do we um, come in, in into the story as it's going here and, and as God shows us this unveiling of how everything will be in living today in what we would call the last days? Um, <clears throat> we, are, we are living in a day and time where people are still persecuted for their faith. There are people all over the globe who suffer 
for following Jesus. There are places where it's illegal to, uh, to, to be a Christian. You know, it's illegal not to follow another religion or, or something else. So when we put on the sackcloth of repentance, what we're doing is we're pledging allegiance to Jesus. We're pledging allegiance to his kingdom. And, and it's saying that I belong to Jesus. I don't belong to Satan. I am his. It goes back to what we talked about with the seals previously when, when they were told to go and seal God's people. And the seal would, would be on, on them as they would seal a slave saying that you belong to someone. And you either belong to Satan or you belong to God. There's no in-between. We belong to one or the other. And, and so when we are sealed, it means that we belong to Jesus. We're his property. We're sealed by him. We've left our kingdom and we've entered into his kingdom and, and we have trusted in him and we have become followers of him. Johnson uh, puts it this way when he talks about the great city. He says, the great city is any and every city that resists the inbreaking kingdom of God and persecutes Jesus' witnesses. The great city is every city that embodies self-sufficiency in place of dependence on the creator, achievement in place of repentance, oppression in place of faith, the beast in place of the lamb, and murder in place of witness to God. We know all about the great city. So it, it is, and we could think about that, and, and we could think of all of these different things there coming in and, and looking at it and, and seeing the, the witness of Jesus, the word of God, the message of Christ, as opposed to the message of the world, the things that are around us. We're surrounded by Babylon and Egypt today, and, and the only way to change that, the only way that we're going to change that is to live like these two witnesses. It's really the only way to do it. Daily repenting from self-sufficiency and instead living lives dependent on Jesus. Uh, another way of saying it is, is putting the agenda of God ahead of our own agenda. So you know what? I'm going to live for the kingdom of God. I'm not going to live for my kingdom and my things. It, it means that knowing that the cross is offensive to the people outside of the faith. And I mean, think of it for a minute. When, when, we, when we hold up the standard of Christ, what we're saying is clearly that everything else is wrong. It's not a message that's wishy-washy or mealy-mouthed. It is straight up and down. It's straight up and down. And that's offensive, it says that it tormented them. The witness, the message of the witnesses tormented them. Why were they tormented? They were tormented because of their sin, their brokenness before God and wanting to justify that in some shape, form, or fashion. And so it, it means that we know that the cross is offensive to the people outside of the church, outside of the faith, and that we live it out anyway, that we live out our faith regardless of what anybody will think about that. It means that we live out our stated values. It means that the things that we, that we write down and say, these are our values, the things that we say, this is what we're here for, that we actually align with that our actions match up with our words, that we are doing this in a way that is clear. And the only way that we're going to make changes to the great city is to live lives that are fully given to Jesus. No compromise. No compromise. It's a life that is fully given to him. It's a life that people see and they're drawn to. It's a life that they see and they, they see something in that life and they say, you know what? There's something there that I want. There's some kind of an assurance in that person that I want to have. There's some kind of a hope that they have that I want to have. There's something there that helps them to live with the past and to live today in the present and with a hope to the future that I want. I want to be brought to that point. I want to be able to do that. I want to experience that. It is constantly repenting and turning from the idolatry that so easily entangles us. <clears throat> or as the writer of Hebrews says, let us put aside the sin that so easily entangles us and, and, and 
Move forward, move towards the cross, move towards Christ, move to where he has created and called us to be. So it's putting on the, the, the sackcloth of repentance and the sackcloth of the prophet, approaching a broken world out of her own brokenness over our own sin. It means that as we come in, we're not a people who point our fingers at everyone. We're a people who share a hope that God has given to us. We're a people who say, you know what? I have a past just like you have a past. I have things in my past that I'm not proud of just like you have things in your past. And I wanna tell you the only difference between us is is that I have turned to Jesus and left my kingdom and entered into his, and he has changed me. He has made me whole. There's nothing I can do that will do that. Um, Only he could do that. And he has given me a hope for the future. And and that is where we come in and we live it out for the people around us. And, And they're drawn not to a people who are pointing their finger at them, but instead to a people who are living out a life of love and grace and mercy and a life that's, that's straight up and down, a life of no compromise for the world to see. And, and in that saying, you know what? The hope that I have, God offers you that hope. The forgiveness that I have received, God offers you that same forgiveness. It's not because I'm good enough. It's not because I've earned it. It's not because I I come from the right place or anything else. It's simply because of what Jesus has done for me. And and as we come in, if, if you remember, you know, going back, we go back. Who's on the throne? God's on the throne. Jesus by God on the throne. The, the, four, uh, the four living creatures are around the throne. The 24 elders around the throne. And a multitude that's countless is around the throne giving glory to God. There's no temple in the city anymore. We find in Revelation uh, 20 because Jesus is the temple. Because he is the light. There is no sun or moon because he gives light. There is no darkness because there is no darkness in him. There is no place to hide the ugly because it's been revealed, it's been covered, it's been cleared, it's been forgiven, and he has given us a hope into the future. And he calls us into this. And this is what, when we come into these two witnesses, it's coming there and it's approaching a broken world out of our brokenness, just like when you look at, if you look at the picture there, they're clothed in sackcloth. Why did people put on sackcloth and ash? Because they needed to repent. When Jonah goes around Nineveh, what did they do? He said, three days and Nineveh will be destroyed. Under his breath, he muttered, I hate your guts and I hope you get it. But um, that was his attitude, you know? Um, Because he was angry that God forgave them. But here's what the people in Nineveh did. They put on sackcloth and ash. They repented before God. And what did God do? He relented. He forgave them. Because that's what the message of the Bible is. It's a God who redeems and restores broken humanity. That's the hope of the message of salvation. And, and we are to approach a broken world out of our own brokenness over our own sin. I approach a broken world as a broken human being who has been forgiven, not as somebody who has it all figured out. You see, <clears throat> You think, you know, I'll never be able to figure all this stuff out. Look, here's the thing. I've studied the Bible for years and years. I've been a pastor for 30 years. I mean, that's what I do. That's my job. I mean, I study the word of God as part of my job. Um, read, 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 read. And I've read through the Bible countless times. And you know what I've learned? I don't know much. I just don't know a whole lot. And, and I'll tell you, people who are older than me who have done it even longer, they'll tell you the same thing. And they'll tell me that I don't know as much as I think I know. Because that's just the, the, more, the more I uncover about God, the more 
I realize he's so vast and amazing and, and, and beyond my comprehension. And, and I can see in pictures here that, that John paints that, that he sees as he goes in and, and he looks and it's kind of like this and it's kind of like this. And, and, and he gives me pictures and, and they're pictures of things that are familiar to him as, as he would look through there. And, and as I study the word of God, I go, I see that. I see, I see the hand of God throughout. And I see the hand of God throughout the Old Testament as, as he points to the promise of the coming of Christ. And I see the, the offer that he is making to the people. And I see their faithfulness. And, and I see that in the New Testament as people turn to Christ. And, and I see that as, as we come in and, and we begin to look at that. But it's, it's the hope that he has given to us and, and he has placed within us. And it's not because we deserve it or we're good enough. It's because he is a God of grace and mercy. And he is a God who is holy and just and he will punish sin, yet he offers to take that sin on himself on the cross and pay it on our behalf so that we can be made holy and righteousness, holy and righteous before him. You see, we come into this and as we come into the two witnesses, the one thing about this is I would say it's the church in humility, in humility, taking the message of the gospel out. Um, I, I, that's, that's how I would apply that. I would say an, an application of this would be for us to take the word of the gospel out as a message of hope. And now here's an interesting thing. At the end of it, at the end of it, it says that there was a great earthquake and 7,000 people were killed. We go, oh. And a tenth of the city fell. Uh, 7,000 people were killed in the earthquake and the rest were terrified and gave glory to the God of heaven. You know, this is a flip. This is a flip. If you go back in, in the Old Testament, it would say 90% would perish and 10% would survive. 10 of you, there will be 100, there'll be 10 left. There'll be 1,000, there'll be 100 left. There'll be you know, 10,000, 1,000 left. You, you see this happening. Here, it, it's flipped backwards. 90% live. And they gave glory to the God of heaven. So this is the one place that we find here where those who are outside of the faith turn to God. We see the grace and mercy of God. We see this huge, amazing thing take place. So, so this is, this is the, the hope that God offers to us, and this is the comfort that he offers to us, and this is the picture that we see. And <clears throat> we come in and, and we approach a broken world, not out of perfection, but out of brokenness. Um, over 100 years ago, there was a guy named G.K. Chesterton. G.K. Chesterton, he... Uh, he, he was a, he's an author, but, um, but anyway, there was, uh, the times of London had an essay contest. So they had an essay contest and, and, and the, the essay that was to be written was what is wrong with the world? So write an essay on that. Now we could all write that essay, right? And, and we could come up with all kinds of stuff, but here's what Chesterton wrote. He said, he, he wrote, what is wrong with the world? Semicolon. I am, period. Sincerely, G.K. Chesterton. And he sent it in. And I survived over 100 years. Um, why? Because he said, look, I, I, if I want to figure out what's wrong with things, I need to start right here. I need to start right here. And this is where when we come back in <clears throat> and, we, and we come in, we're, we're called by God to charge ahead, full speed ahead and trust him, to trust him to hold us, to trust him to hold our faith, to trust him to keep his promise, to trust him to be for us what he was for the apostles, to trust him to be for us what he was for the people in those seven churches, to trust him what he was that he will be for us what he was for Ezekiel, for Isaiah, for the children of Israel coming out all the way back that the God who was and is and is to come, the God who is unchanging, that he will be who he is for us. He is calling us to go full speed ahead into our community, into a place that, that figuratively you could call Babylon in Egypt and, and come in there and share the hope of Jesus Christ and do it in such a way that, that we know that, hey, there are people who are going to be very bitter over it. They will reject that message. 
And there will be people for whom it will be the sweetest thing they ever heard in their life. And for us, it will just be experiencing the God who was and is and is to come. The God who promises to go before us and the God who promises to go with us. The God who protects us, who watches over us, who gives us a hope and a future. And God offers that to us today. And that is the hope that has been there for the ages. It is the hope that we find in Jesus Christ crucified on the cross. It is the hope that he offers to us today. And maybe today you're here and, and you look at it all and you go, you know what, this is, this is uh, just kind of, a lot of information, a whole lot of stuff happening out there, but I do not want to experience the wrath of God. I don't want that type of thing to happen to me. And, and it's coming in. And what it is, is it, the message is simple, that Jesus offers life. He offers fullness of life. He offers forgiveness of our sin. He offers not only that he will forgive us and make us whole, that we will be holy and blameless in his sight, and that he will hold us until the day that we stand before him. He promises to never leave us, never forsake us. When, he, when we look in measuring that, that's, that's the protection of God. Notice God doesn't protect the whole world. He protects those who come into faith. It's an exclusivity that he promises and he offers, and it's exclusively found in Jesus Christ. So maybe today you're here and you say, you know what, I want that. It's really simple. It's saying, I'm going to leave my kingdom and I'm going to step into his. I'm going to live life not on my terms, but on his terms. I'm going to trust him, trust what he did for me on the cross. I'm going to follow him and I'm going to ask him to be my master. You can do that right now, right where you are. We're going to stand up in a moment. We're going to sing a song. You can you go, you know what? Can you help me with that? I'd be glad to pray with you right down here, right, right now this morning. Um, <clears throat> you, you may say, you know what? I, I'd like to talk to you more about that. You can do that. You can get that thing out. You can check the little card in the back of your seat back. Say, give me a call. I want to talk more about this. That, that's totally understandable. You know what? The only thing that's not understandable is not to respond to Jesus. It just doesn't make sense. It just doesn't make sense. He offers a promise that he will receive all who come to him. So that's, that's the, the one thing. The next thing is, is as we come in, are we all in on the kingdom of God? Today as you come in, are, are you all in on the kingdom of God? I mean, all in for him. Because this is where we're going. This is where it is moving. And this is where things finally and fully flesh out. That the kingdom of God in all of his fullness, by the time we get to the end of the book, the world is gone. The world as we know it is gone. And it's all new. It's all made new. And there's a new heaven, a new earth. And, and in there, there is no brokenness. There is no anything other than perfection before God. God has fully made us whole. Let's pray. Father, we come before you thanking you for the hope that we have in Jesus, thanking you for the promise that you've made to us that if we come to you, you'll receive us. Father, we come to you in our brokenness, knowing that there's nothing, nothing that we could do that would make us right with you, that there's never been any way for man to come to you besides through Jesus. Father, we pray now that you would draw us close to you, Father, that we would be focused on the plans and the purposes that you have for us, for the things that you have in store for us as a church, for the hope that you have for us for the future. Father, that you would help us to take the gospel message to the people around us and to share the hope that comes from you through the lives that we live, through the way that we love people, through the way that we're truthful with them, and through the way that we trust you in all things. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.